About 15 years ago, on December 8th, 2008, at 11.11 in the morning, a young Marine pilot took off from the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln on a routine training flight. Lieutenant Dan Neubauer is flying an FA-18 Hornet about 90 miles southwest of San Diego. And minutes into the flight, he notices how low his oil pressure is in one of the two engines, and he shuts the engine down. Then the light shows low fuel in the other engine, and so he begins talking to air traffic control, and he gives options and suggestions. He's given options and suggestions, rather, on where to make an emergency landing. He can either go to the Naval Air Station on North Island, and that route will take him over San Diego Bay, or he can go to the Marine Air Station at Miramar, with which he's more familiar, but which takes him over a heavily populated stretch of land. Well, he is more familiar with that route, the second one, so as he's trying to make his decision, the second engine flames out. And about three miles from either runway, his electrical system dies. So Lieutenant Neubauer tries to aim the jet towards a canyon, and he ejects at what all seemed to, be, seemed to agree was the last possible moment. The jet crashed nose down into University City, which was a neighborhood of San Diego, hitting two homes and damaging three. Four people are killed, a 36-year-old mother, her daughters aged 15 months and two months, and her 60-year-old mother. The Marines launched an investigation of themselves. The results were later announced by Major General Randolph Allies, who at the time was an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., where Mark Dever is senior pastor. The Major General Randolph Allies had been in Quantico, Virginia, and had now been sent to San Diego. He was the wing commander for the Marines, and it was his job to give the report. Here's what he said. In his report, quote, This crash was clearly avoidable. It was the result of a chain of wrong decisions. This airplane should have been removed from service and fixed, and it was not. Mechanics had known since July of a glitch in the jet's fuel transfer system. The young pilot failed to read the safety checklist. He relied on guidance from the Marines at Miramar, who did not have complete knowledge or understanding of his situation. He should have been ordered to to land at North Island. He took an unusual approach to Miramar, taking a long left loop instead of a shorter turn to the right, which ate up time and fuel. Twelve Marines have been disciplined. Four senior officers, including the squadron commander, have been removed from duty. Their military careers are essentially over. The pilot is grounded while the board reviews his future. Residents later told a San Diego newspaper, that they were taken aback by the report. One man said, quote, the Marines aren't trying to hide this or duck it. They took it on the chin. A retired Navy pilot who lived a block from the crash and had formed a group to push the Marines for an investigation said after he heard the briefing, I think we're out of business. Retired General Bob Butcher, the chairman of the Society of Marine Aviators, called the report, quote, as open and frank a discussion of an accident as I've ever seen. It was a lot more candid than many people expected, end quote. 
The day after the report, a young naval aviator who was in pre-deployment training north of San Diego said that the marine investigation had kept him up that night because of how it contrasted with so much of the buck passing that we see everywhere else in society. He found himself wondering if the marines had been too hard on themselves. But then he thought more. They are, after all, marines. Dear ones, wouldn't it be great if people could say something similar to us as Christians? When we blow it, when we do something wrong, we take it on the chin, we acknowledge it without equivocation, we confess what we have done as wrong, and people could say of us, you know, they're really hard on themselves, but what do we expect? After all, they're Christians. Wouldn't it be great if we were so serious about repentance that the watching world was made to stand with their mouths gaping at the absolute honesty and acceptance of responsibility that is characteristic of the Christian church. The owning of fault without blame shifting, without excuses, without denial, fully owning our sin. I think we might turn the world upside down. This is the kind of life that John the Baptist would be preaching to us if he were preaching in this pulpit this morning. Where we own our sin, and because of the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ, we are able to accept it, to acknowledge it, to realize the consequences of it, to ask for forgiveness for it, and to change in light of it. Back in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when the angel Gabriel first appeared to Zechariah, and describe to him what John's ministry would be, we read the following. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What's the key word we get in Gabriel's words to Zechariah concerning the ministry of John the Baptist, his son? Turn, turn, turn. He will turn, he will turn, he will turn. He will turn many of the Israelites to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers. He will turn the disobedient. And then look at chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1 in verses 76 and 77, when Zechariah prophesies after John's, after Jesus' birth and his tongue is finally loosed to praise the Lord again, Zechariah says in Chapter 1, verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, talking about his own son, John, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And that's what we understand repentance to be. Repentance involves a turning of the direction of our life and the affections of our hearts so that we become oriented to God, loving the things that he loves, hating the things that he hates. Let me give you the definition that I'm going to be using for repentance this morning in our sermon. I think it's derived from the text, as we'll see as we walk through it. But here's my working definition of repentance. Repentance is turning from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth, or what I have done by my own effort, and turning to the absolute free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. I'll say it again. 
Repentance is turning from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth or what I have done by my own effort and turning to the absolute free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. I think that's what John would have us to learn this morning. That was the essence of what his ministry was all about, repentance. And repentance being calling the people to turn from every reliance they would have upon themselves or their own effort and turning to the free and absolute sovereign mercy of God alone for their salvation. Repentance, therefore, is the altering of what we rely on in life. It's altering what we hope in. It's altering and changing what we are counting on for salvation in the age to come and in the here and now. The repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins is turning away from what we are by birth or what we achieve by effort to rely wholly on God's sovereign grace. Brothers and sisters, if we were mastered by the grace of repentance, do you realize the fountains of revival that might split this community, state, and nation wide open? If we were to forgive one another and to repent to one another in this sort of way and call out to God for his mercy alone to pardon us, do you not realize how powerful a gospel witness that would be? That is the light the church is called to shine in this age of so much defensiveness. We live in an age of protection, even if we have to lie about it. Protect the tribe. Protect the interests. Dear ones, if we're going to be people of honesty, integrity, and truth, if we're going to maintain our prophetic power in our own culture, we are going to have to get comfortable with and accelerate in the practice of private and public repentance. And I believe John, as our tutor this morning, has some words for us that he would like to share about how we can get there. So three points of application concerning repentance this morning. The importance of repentance, the relevance of repentance, and the evidence of repentance. First of all, in the first six verses, Luke tells us about John's ministry and highlights the importance of repentance. Now the first two verses of the chapter, of chapter 3, give us the context for John's ministry. It's the historical backdrop. Verses 1 and 2 list a rogues gallery of some of the most powerful figures of the day as John and Jesus began their respective ministries. Tiberius followed Herod as emperor and has been ruling Rome at this point for 15 years since around 14 AD. Pilate has been reigning over Judea from since AD 26 for four years up to this point and will continue to reign for six more years until AD 36. Herod ruled Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to AD 39. He would continue, he'd been reigning for over 30 years at this point. He'd be reigning for another nine years. Philip ruled over the northern Transjordanian territories from 4 BC to 34 BC. So he'd been ruling since 4 BC for now 34 years, and he's going to rule for another four, capping his reign at something like 38 years. Caiaphas served between AD 18. And AD 36, he would reign for six more years. Annas had been high priest since 86, the year 6, to AD 15, but was still called high priest after he left his office. And Caiaphas was highlighted. 
So Luke's precision in giving us these names is part of what he's intending to do in giving us, remember what he says in chapter 1, an orderly account of the things that have happened and how they took place. So these specific titles give specific concern for a detailed historical accuracy of the record that he is writing, and his accuracy is confirmed by the historical records outside the Bible. All these guys ruled at this time, and that's not based on the Bible. That's based on known history. So when we're in the realm of Scripture, we're in the realm of real history. And yet, while we have a list of these powerful rulers, these movers and shakers of the ancient world, this is not what the primary reason, I think, that Luke is even giving us these names to begin with. Certainly, it has to do with him wanting to establish historical validity for his gospel and showing us that Christ is, and John for that matter, are real historical figures, really people who lived in a real time and place and ministered and lived there. But notice what I think Luke's primary reason is in verses 2 and 3. In Luke chapter 3, verse 2, after he's given this list of names, notice what he says in the second half of the verse. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's that all about? Nothing in the whole world, no matter what's going on, no matter what movers and shakers, whoever's in office, whoever's out of office, none of that matters as much as what happens when God's word comes to God's people. That is what changes things. That is what God is interested in. God is more interested in what is happening right now than what will happen on any election day. Do you believe that? Biblically, do you believe that? What is happening in God's house, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, matters more than what happens in the White House. And what happens in the White House is not inconsequential. It's just not eternally consequential. It's temporally consequential. And so God is fixated on what's going on with this weird guy in the wilderness. Not what's happening in the priesthood. What's happening in the government of Rome. What's happening in the culture. No, what's happening among the people of God. Are they receiving his word? Are they hearing his word? Are they ignoring it? That is what God is interested in. Nothing is more important than when God's word comes to God's people. So what is God doing? He's sending a prophet into the wilderness to call his people to repentance. While we are often focused on the halls of Congress or the state of academia or the influence of the media, God is interested in the preaching of his gospel and the calling of individuals to turn from their sin. This is central to God's heart, and it's what he cares about. And this is something God has been caring about for a long time. Why do I say that? Well, look what's quoted in verses three, or sorry, verses four to six. Luke quotes Isaiah the prophet that we read earlier, that led us in the reading of, in Isaiah 40. Much of Isaiah, let me just give you some of the historical context for that, much of Isaiah's, of Isaiah's prophecy in the first 39 chapters focuses on the judgment that has come upon the southern kingdom of Judah because of their unwillingness to repent of their sin. And then 
That led to the expulsion from the land at the hands of the Babylonians. But chapter 40 marks a turn, a glorious turn, where God promises a redemption for his people. Notice what we read in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is that voice. Now has come the time for his people to repent. Now has come the time for his people to get right with the Lord. And John is the voice that has been sent by the Lord to turn his people's hearts back to God. John the Baptist's ministry was Isaiah's straight, flat highway in the desert, preparing the people of God to be ready for the kingdom of God to come among them in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to end their spiritual exile. John is functioning like many of... He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. You remember those Old Testament great prophets like Elijah and even Moses. They were wilderness prophets. They prophesied God's word in the wilderness. They led Moses, in Moses' case, led God's people through the wilderness. Elijah, whom John the Baptist is a figure of, is another wilderness prophet. But they all lead the way to the ones who will be the prophets on the land. Moses gives way to Joshua which is a name for Jesus. The Lord saves. And similarly, Elijah gives way to Elisha, who is a prophet to the people of the land. Jesus will not spend most of his time in the wilderness. He will be tempted, as we will see in Luke chapter 4, in the wilderness to begin his ministry, just like so many prophets had done before. But his primary ministry will be one on the land among the people, preaching to them and reminding them of what they are to be and do in light of God's kingdom coming. So in this sense, John's baptism and his ministry is all preparatory. His baptism is not the same as the one Jesus commands, but it does share points of contact with Jesus' baptism and the commands that Jesus gives for disciples to be baptized. But the most important thing that all these things share in common is our need to repent of our sins so that we can enter Christ's kingdom. God is going to make a way through the ministry of John the Baptist for all people to hear the good news of his salvation. The mountains will be lowered, he says. The crooked ways will be straightened. The rough ways will be smoothed. This is similar to what we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 52. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Why? So that all flesh, all people, might see and have access to salvation. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. Luke has already told us as much through the song of Simeon earlier in chapter 2, verses 30 and 32, where we read, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This Savior is for the whole world. And John has come to prepare Israel to get right with God so that they, through them, the gospel might go forward to the world. Dear ones, Let's just step back and notice the importance of repentance here. Why do, you th- why do you think the big thing that God is doing in the world is? Where is he at work? This text should persuade us from the place we chiefly look for God's activity. While God is at work in the culture, in politics, among the elites, his main work is in the positioning of those people to serve his much quieter, universe-changing work, which is getting worked off the grid, 
among the nobodies in the wilderness, one by one, as individuals are immersed in water, signifying their repentance. That's the big story of God. And if we've been paying attention to Luke so far, we see that God is at work in a virgin from Galilee, in a family from Nazareth, in the shepherd's fields of Israel. And the main work he is doing is in the preaching of salvation and the response of repentance. God is concerned with eternal realities, and he's shaping our temporal times to serve those eternal realities. That's the importance of repentance. Secondly, the relevance, the relevance of repentance. So, so why is this important? It's important, I understand, from God's perspective, but why, how is it relevant to us? Well, it has everything to do with us, doesn't it? Look at what John says in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John, it's a great way to make friends and influence people. Haven't you read Norman Vincent Peale about how to close a deal, man? Just going to insult them as they come out to follow God? She's going to tell him, what are you doing here? Get out of here. This isn't for you. What? I thought it was for them. In this one verse, John gives us several reasons why repentance is relevant, why we need to repent. First, notice what he identifies them as. He says, you brood of vipers. Now, what does that mean to a Jew who knows their Old Testament? These Jews are going out to John, a Jew, to be baptized And he calls them a brood of vipers. Well, in Genesis 3, you remember, Satan is pictured as a serpent. So when John, remember what Jesus says later, which we'll get to in just a moment. But when John calls them a brood of vipers, he's calling them sons of the devil. You're children of Satan. What are you doing there? That's exactly what Jesus said in John 8, where we read, from our Savior's own mouth, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your, what your father did. You were of your father the devil and your wills to do your father's desires. Jesus is just saying exactly what John said. John is telling them, and Jesus would later tell them, that they need to repent because they belong to Satan. But there is another reason they need to repent. Because of that, the wrath of God is coming to them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? God is going to come and judge them for their sin, and we're going to look at this in more detail next week, but just look, glance down quickly at verse 17 where John gives a summary of what this judgment will look like. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's the seed of the woman. There's the seed of the serpent. And one will be gathered into the barn of heaven and the other will be thrown into the fire of hell. John says in verse 9, even now the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. Now, does all this sound severe to us this morning? Well, if it sounds severe to you, 
then you're in good company because you would have no different a response than those who heard what John was saying to them on that day. They heard all this as mighty out of line, as too harsh, as too difficult to swallow. And John anticipates their objection in verse 8. Notice what he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's the objection that he anticipates that they're going to give for why they should be candidates for his baptism. Let me put, let's put ourselves in the, in, the, in the skin of one of those Israelites that day. John has just called me a brood of vipers, one of the brood of vipers. He's just insulted me as though I had no right to come out here to be baptized by him. Doesn't John know who we are? We're God's chosen people. He's calling us to get baptized. But John is doing it like we're a common Gentile. Who does this guy think he is? Telling the sons of Abraham that we are in the same boat with the rest of the world and under God's wrath. He claims to be a prophet of God. He's forgotten the words of Genesis 17. Genesis 17, God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant. How then can a son of Abraham ever worry about being swept away like chaff by the wrath of God? John, let us into that water. Now some of the Jews thought that by virtue of their physical Jewishness that God must bless them. They had the mistaken notion that God's promise to be faithful to the children of Abraham guaranteed their salvation no matter what. He can't pour out wrath on them. He always keeps his word. So it does not matter finally if they're repentant or not. Dear ones, are we ever prone to think the same way? Where do we look to get our assurance for our right standing with God? Our moral record? our family pedigree, the ways in which we don't sin compared to other Christians, church attendance, walking an aisle or praying a prayer or joining a church. What is most frightening about John's rebuke is that these people were looking at objective criteria, not subjective. They were looking to an objective covenant that God made. It appeared from the, on the surface that they weren't relying on themselves. But actually, that covenant had not made any difference whatsoever in their lives. It had not changed them to any meaningful degree. And that was John's concern. It had not led them to repentance. So what John is saying is, don't you dare rely on a gospel word that hasn't changed you. Don't you dare rely on a covenant that has made no difference in your life. John is implying that unless the Jews to whom he was preaching were willing to repent, they're not really Jews to begin with. And they could not count on the promised blessings God had made to his chosen people. They were merely ethnic Jews. They weren't spiritual Jews. They weren't truly the people of God. They were just an ethnically identified people. God had made promised blessings to a chosen people. But in calling Jews to accept a baptism of repentance, John is telling them they can't rely on their Jewishness to be saved. 
They have to have a changed heart toward God. In this way, they're in the exact same category as the Gentiles are. Jewishness is no guarantee of salvation, and non-Jewishness is no hindrance to salvation. What matters is repentance. So God is able to keep both his promises to Abraham and to put a stop to the boasting of those who are physically descended from Abraham. How? He says, God's able to raise up stones to be children of Abraham. Yes, God will be faithful to Abraham's seed, but your pride has blinded you to who Abraham's seed really is. They are not every single physical descendant of Abraham. They are those who walk by faith like Abraham, like Simeon, like Zechariah, like Mary, like Joseph, like John, like Jesus. God can create a people like that out of stones and leave others to judgment and still be faithful to his promises because God is free to have mercy on whomever he wills. You want to know the evidence of that? You are the stones that God has raised up to be children of Abraham. Not very flattering, is it? You're a stone. What can a stone do? Nothing. But lay there. And God powerfully and irresistibly caused you to be born again. Woke you up. Made you alive in Christ Jesus. Resurrected you from spiritual death. Gave you faith, gave you repentance, gave you eyes to see the glory of Christ. And you embraced him and you became a child of Abraham. God's mercy is such that he can make anybody a child of Abraham, even this dude, who has no business being a pastor. Based on my spiritual pedigree, which is non-existent. After all, as the New Testament teaches, it's those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.7, Galatians 3.29. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are a son of Abraham. You're a daughter of Abraham. And you are a part of God's chosen family. So that's the relevance of repentance. Thirdly and finally, we come to the evidence of repentance. We've looked at its importance. We've looked at its relevance. Now let's come to its evidence in verses 10 to 14. John tells the crowds, one word in verse 8 that sort of summarizes is the kind of the theme verse of his entire sermon here. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That was the problem. There was, there was no evidence that they were genuinely sorry for their sin. There was no evidence that they had turned back to God. They just showed up in the wilderness one day, said, hey, what's going on here? Maybe I'll do that. He says in verse 9, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. If there's no fruit that accords with the repentance, the repentance is not real. And it doesn't matter if the tree is Jewish or Gentile. If there's no fruit on the tree, there's no repentance in the heart. So what does it mean to bear fruit? What's John talking about here? He says, bear fruits. There's multiple things that come. There's multiple avenues of evidence that show up in the truly repentant. Well, in verses 10 through 14, he gives us the kind of lifestyle that follows 
a true repent, truly repentant person? What are the marks of a truly repentant person? What's the evidence of a truly repentant person? There are three groups in verses 10 to 14 that John addresses. The crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. Let's see those first. Look at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? So three different groups of people come to him, crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers. They all ask the same question. What do you want us to do, John? What, what are we supposed to do? And John gives a response to each one of the groups. Look, first of all, at the multitude. He says to the multitude, verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Be generous with what you have. Share what you have with those who need it. To the teachers, tax collectors come to him. He says in verse 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Stop being greedy. Stop being stingy. Stop wanting to get a cut off the top of the people that you're taxing. It's theft, and you need to quit it. And then, verse 14, soldiers ask him, what shall we do? And he says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Soldiers, Roman soldiers were often underpaid. They leveraged their power to get some payoffs from people. You want us to turn this in, or you want to give us some money? All right. And they would extort people for it. So what is the evidence that John is focusing on for repentance in all of these crowds, in the crowds, and the tax collectors, and in the soldiers. It's, it's all the same. It all has to relate with how they're interacting with their stuff. The crowds are told to give away part of what they have, and the tax collectors and soldiers are told not to take more than what they're supposed to take. So when you think of all the hundreds of commands that John could have given and all the exhortations Luke could have recorded. It's astonishing that in all three cases, John refers to their relationship with their things and their devotion to money as the main evidence of their repentance. That strike you? Strikes me. Now let me do a little theology here on why I think Luke is doing this, why he chooses to record these things. Because I'm sure John said other things as well. But these are the things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he wanted, that the Spirit wanted Luke to record. You may not be aware of this, but of the four Gospels, Luke has the most to say about wealth in any of the four Gospels. And poverty, for that matter. We must remember two things if we're going to understand Luke's attitude towards the rich. First, Luke was almost certainly writing to the rich. Okay? His Gospel and Acts, for that matter, is addressed to whom? Theophilus. And in his gospel, he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. Now, that's an honorific title that's associated with Roman magistrates like Felix and Festus in Acts 23 and 26. Most excellent Fetus. Festus. Fetus are most excellent as well, but that's not what we're talking about. Most excellent Festus, most excellent Felix. So Theophilus was probably some kind of Roman official or at least a person of high social standing who was recently converted and in need of instruction. Luke is writing to a rich man. But Luke is also himself a rich man. Paul referred to him in Colossians 4 as the beloved physician, which was not a meager profession now or then. 
Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they might denounce the rich. Rather, Luke was a rich man writing to another rich man and people like him, like us, in order to show how the rich can truly follow Jesus. But he also includes a surprising number of examples of wealthy persons who demonstrate genuine discipleship of Christ, while also including material in his gospel to warn and rebuke the rich, which we need to hear. So we will see, as we make our way through the gospel of Luke, the danger of riches, that riches can lead us to be callous toward others, haughty, proud, cheaters, swindlers, wrongly confident in ourselves, foolishly trusting in our own wealth. If that is our life now, Luke says, then we're in for a rude awakening at the end of the age because everything's going to be turned upside down. The humble poor will be lifted up, the arrogant rich will be cast down. But on the other hand, we'll also see how the rich can be faithful with their wealth. They support Jesus and his ministry. They stand up for what is right. They use their money wisely for spiritual gain. The righteous rich in Luke are still rich, but they're also generous, repentant of their wrongs, and faithful to the cause of Christ. And so we have much to learn about how we can steward the incomparable riches that God has put in our laps for his kingdom. Over and over then, Luke is communicating to rich people like Theophilus and to rich people like many of us. So then, Pastor Mark, what would John say we should do? I mean, we're not a tax collector. We're not a soldier. Okay, We're not extorting in the same way they are. We're not even really a part of the crowds that were there because we're not even Jews ethnically. So what are we supposed to do with this? What's the evidence of our repentance? Well, for that answer, we need to look more, look more broadly at the Gospel of Luke, and we're just going to spend the last few minutes doing that, and I promise it's the last few minutes. We're finishing early, a little bit early today. So how can the rich enter the kingdom of heaven according to Luke? Well, it doesn't mean you need to feel constant shame for being rich. It doesn't mean trading places with someone who has less material wealth. It doesn't mean prophetic denunciations of material goods or income disparity. It looks like what John the Baptist says. We believe Christ is our everything, and we can't serve two masters. We repent, we turn from any cheating, swindling, or lying, and we make amends with those we've mistreated. We put Jesus before profit. We're generous. We give freely to help others, especially those in the church, but not exclusively those in the church. We try to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. We're good stewards. We don't try to manipulate our way to God by lying or putting on a show or trying to accrue power with our wealth. We're always shrewd, but we're never power-hungry. We do not trust in our money. We know there's no real security in dollars and cents. The righteous rich do not expect their earthly riches to last. They live for the heavenly riches, and they use their earthly riches to increase those heavenly riches. We demonstrate humility. We consider everything we have to be a gift from God, and we are meek before others, and we are meek before God. In other words, Luke, the great evangelist to the rich, says exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, that's us, 
The poorest among us are the rich in the present age. I've been to North India. That's poor. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What does he say to the rich? Get it all! Get away! Get away from it! No, he says, be careful. There's a temptation here. Don't set your hope there. It's uncertain. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But on God. Set your hope on God. It is possible to do that as a rich person. We know. Because we are those and we are those. The rich who are hoping in the Lord. But why do we set our hope on God? Because he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is not a killjoy. He's not one that says, be as poor as you possibly can. No, he provides you with things both to enjoy and so that you might have something to give. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And notice what he says about that. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what John would say to us. That's what Paul says to us. And that's what repentance would look like. Not setting our hope in the uncertainty of riches, not living for money, not maximizing work hours at the expense of our family and our spiritual life and our church commitments just so we can make more, so we can do more, so we can build more but recognizing that's enough. We don't need to do more, build more, get more. Just be content, and now let's give. And that's what the Lord would call us to do. So repentance then isn't just saying sorry, is it? It's being sorry. Repentance isn't just a change of mind, it's a change of heart. Repentance isn't just about canceling our past, it's about changing our future. It's not just about a clean slate. It's about a clean soul. Dear ones, I want you to notice something as I conclude here. I know this has been heavy on repentance and things like that, but notice how Luke summarizes this in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached what to the people? Good news. Doesn't sound like good news brood of vipers, wrath, quit stealing, quit living for money. That's good news. How's that good news? Here's how it's good news. Verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's a way to get out from wrath to come. That's why it's good news. What did John preach? Verse 3, Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for what? The forgiveness of sins. That's why it's good news. There's escape from all this. And it comes through forgiveness. Full, free, fast, final, forever forgiveness. And that forgiveness is granted the moment we recognize the importance of repentance, we see the relevance of repentance for our own lives, and we give the evidence of repentance. And the way to forgiveness is open to all, Jew and Gentile, by the same road, the road of repentance. And the road of repentance is a joyful road. Isn't it? Matthew 13, 44. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure hidden in a field. And when he went, he sold everything he had, and he came back and he bought that field. Why did he buy that field? He sold everything. Why did he sell everything? Because the treasure in the field was worth so much. That's Christian. If you do not see Jesus as the treasure in a field, all this sounds like bad news to you. But if you see Jesus as the eternal satisfaction of your never-dying, ever-living soul, the one who will never leave you and never forsake you when all riches do, then he will be worth more to you than anything life can give now or death can take later. He is the pearl of great price. And therefore, repentance becomes like not just a, okay, I will, but a, can I? May I? I want to? Lord Jesus, please take out of my hands all that is not serving my joy. Because that's what sin's doing. It's robbing you. It's stealing. Yes, it's counterfeit, and it tastes good for a little while. But it's going to be gravel in your mouth. And so you give it all to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, you're my portion. You're my life. You're my all. That's what we sang. He demands my soul, my life, my all, not as a punishment, but as the path to everlasting joy and everlasting life, to save us from the tyranny of mammon. Which means that anybody who turns from trusting in themselves and hopes in the free mercy of God alone will be saved from the impending wrath through the forgiveness of their sins. And that's good news. That's really good news. I hope those of you who have yet to believe it, yet to repent, will embrace it. And those of us who have recognize that in repenting, we never really stop repenting, do we? Now, repentance is a present tense verb for Christians. We never talk about how we repented. We talk about how we're repenting. (laughs) And we will continue to repent until the day where we don't need to repent anymore. And praise the Lord, that day is coming. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the bold truth of John the Baptist who preached to us not what we wanted to hear, but what we need to hear. And not what in our flesh we desire, but in our souls we need and what we truly crave. We need forgiveness. We need repentance. We need, even as our brother Cliff prayed before I preached this morning, and I think you answered our prayer that we would have, that you would use this word in our life to lessen our grip on stuff and to help us more hope in you and to redirect our gaze to eternal sorts of things. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be transformed and changed by your Spirit through your word this morning, Notice, note, note, uh, remembering that this is the main thing that we've done all week. This is the most important thing that we will do, sitting under your word and hearing you speak to us. So thank you for that privilege. Thank you for that opportunity this morning. And help us to bear fruit in keeping with the word that we have heard this morning. We pray for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name. Amen.